0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you as you might expect on the volatile Middle East As we are taping this, the Middle East is in turmoil and actually remains in turmoil. It is simply impossible at this point to have a clear view of all that is occurring and what both the short-term and long-term implications will be. Civil war in some of the nations, a disruption in the flow of oil from this region, higher energy costs, the growth or the demise of radical Islam are all potential results, but no one really knows. It is simply too early. There are, nonetheless, a few items of importance that we can discern. First, Israel. No matter what the long-term impact of the governmental changes in Egypt, Tunisia, and more than likely several other key nations, there will be a change coming for Israel. The popular uprisings in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Bahrain, and others are not about Palestinian rights. They're not even about the creation of a Palestinian state, nor are they about Israel at all. But it is imperative to remember something. The various peace treaties that Israel has between some of its neighbors in Israel, principally Egypt and Jordan come to mind, were made between leaders, not peoples. They had little consequence when the people of Egypt, Jordan, or other Arab nations had no voice in governing their respective nations. That gives every indication of changing, and changing quite profoundly. Once things settle down and more democratic governments emerge in which the Arab populations have more of a say, it is easy to envision an even more isolated Israel in the Middle East. And because the United States is the only friend Israel truly has, America will be more isolated. Furthermore, with the growing power and influence of Iran, it is difficult to be optimistic about the stability of this region when it comes to Arab-Israeli tensions. Second, what will be the role of Islam in this new order emerging in the Middle East? At this point, we do not know. Popular sovereignty, the empowerment of people, and an opportunity to affect economic change for their personal lives seem to be the key motivating factors feeding the uprisings in the Middle East. But these uprisings throughout the region are not entirely secular. Stephen Prothero, who's religion professor at Boston University, argues that the religions of democracy now shaking the Muslim world will likely be allied with Islam, at least as much as American civil religion is allied with Judaism and Christianity close enough to reassure citizens that their nation's projects conform to the will of God, yet far enough to convince citizens that they are not replacing submission to a dictator with submission to a clerical cabal. From my vantage point, I find it very difficult to believe that the middle-class young people in these nations, energized by Twitter and Facebook, will accept a government run by radical Islamic clerics similar to those who govern Iran. Will the people of Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Bahrain, and others be open to seeing their ruthless dictators replaced by Muslim radical clerics who seek to impose rigid Sharia law on them? It's difficult to believe that they would accept this, but the nature of the new governments in these countries and the role that Islam will play in these new governments is simply impossible to determine. Prothero makes an acute observation nonetheless, quote, America has spent trillions of dollars and spilled untold blood in a seemingly endless effort to bring democracy, American style, to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yet Egyptians, citizens with more people than Iraq and Afghanistan combined, won their right to own their own future in just 18 days and with little to no help from the United States. These facts alone should humble us. Finally, in Egypt especially, Muslims and Christians united together in the protests against Hosni Mubarak. Both helped bring him down. But will the new government of Egypt, and perhaps some of these other nations, promote democracy and religious liberty? Will Christianity be protected in the new order sweeping the Middle East? Under Saddam Hussein, for example, Christians enjoyed protection and somewhat flourished in the country of Iraq. But under the new government of Iraq, the opposite has occurred. Today, there are fewer Christians in Iraq than when Saddam ruled. Recently, in Egypt, Islamists killed and persecuted Christians within that country. And Christians compose 10% of the population of Egypt. But they have known recently a good bit of oppression and discrimination. If there is no religious liberty in this new order sweeping the Middle East, persecution of Christians will no doubt increase. One of my greatest concerns is that the new order emerging within the Middle East will be intensely more anti-Israel, more vehemently anti-Christian, and therefore also increasingly and intensely more anti-American. Change is sweeping the Middle East. The nature of this change is still problematic to discern. The results of this change at this point are impossible to discern. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about The United States budget and the states that make up this union, a day of reckoning. The proverbial day of reckoning for the United States, both at the national level and in most of the respective states of this union, has arrived. In this perspective, I want to defend that proposition. First of all, a few thoughts about the budget that President Obama just presented to the Congress. Overall, he basically ignored virtually all of the recommendations of the Deficit Reduction Commission that he had appointed. David Brooks, the columnist, observed, quote, The message of the president's 2012 budget is not yet. We will get serious tomorrow, close that quote. But his budget does reflect one brutal reality. Interest payments on the national debt will quadruple. In the next decade. Beginning in year 2014, net interest payments will surpass the amount spent on education, transportation, energy, and all other discretionary spending in the United States budget outside of defense. In 2018, the interest payments will outstrip Medicare spending. Only amounts spent on defense and Social Security will remain larger. These soaring interest payments will remain the major obstacle to balancing the federal budget. There is no other alternative than major cuts at all levels of spending within the budget. The nation's debt is growing faster than the economy, and interest rates are rising. Over the next decade, net interest payments will amount to nearly 80% of the debt added. Another way of saying that, Our borrowing as a nation is forcing the nation deeper into debt. This is unsustainable. Interest rates are relatively low now, but no one expects them to remain that low. In fact, Obama's budget predicts that the interest rate on 10-year Treasury notes will climb from 3%, where they are basically now, to 5%, then 5.3% by the end of this decade What compounds this situation is that a huge portion of interest payments are flowing out of the United States economy to other nations. There has never been anything like this in American history, even during the record high post-World War II years. How did we get into this mess? The American political culture is uncomfortable with austerity. America's fiscal policy has alternated between giveaway years and take away years from 1946 to 1981 was an era of giveaways entitlement programs expanded especially Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 for example and taxes were cut by President Reagan in 1981 then in 1982 Fiscal policy flipped to take-away years. Taxes were raised in 1982, 83, 84, 87, 1990, and 1993. In 1983, a bipartisan deal led to cuts in future Social Security benefits, a gradual increase in the retirement age, and a higher payroll tax. In 1996, welfare was restructured as well. In 1997... America's fiscal policy shifted back to giveaway years. A generous tax cut was initiated, along with a new child tax credit and a cut in the capital gains tax. A surge in tax revenue pushed by the stock market bubble and pushed the budget into surplus in 1998, four years ahead of schedule. With that, the culture of austerity died. Congress has regularly overridden the 1997 tax cuts in Medicare payments. President Bush cut taxes in 2001 and on capital gains and dividends in 2003. In 2003, he signed into law the expansion of the entitlement culture with the prescription drug benefit fund funded totally by debt. In 2002, the pay-go rule, which had been passed in 1990, stipulating that any tax cut had to be offset by a spending cut, and that the expansion of any entitlement program had to be funded by tax increases, it lapsed. Hence, structural deficits of unsustainable amounts are now the reality. The giveaway years has trumped the takeaway years. And now the day of reckoning has come. Secondly, what is happening in Wisconsin, as I am taping this, is a metaphor for tomorrow. Wisconsin, like almost all of the states, is facing a horrific and unmanageable budget deficit. Governor Scott Walker, recently elected, joined with a Republican majority in Wisconsin legislature in proposing a resolution to the budget crisis. Facing an immediate $137 million budget deficit and a larger $3.6 billion deficit over the next two years, Governor Walker determined to bring some of the entitlement obligations of Wisconsin under control. He proposed That public employees of Wisconsin contribute 5.5% of their income toward their pensions and 12.6% of their income towards their health insurance costs. That is roughly the national average for public pension payments and is less than half of the national average of what government workers contribute to health care. He also wants to limit the power of public employee unions to negotiate contracts and work rules, not wages. They can still negotiate wages, something that 24 states in this union already limit or ban. His proposals are hardly radical, nor are they abnormal. What is really at stake here is political power. The public employee unions are virtually 100 percent committed to the Democratic Party and its candidates. Should they lose the power to negotiate benefits by means of collective bargaining, they will lose power gained under Democratic administrations. Much is at stake in Wisconsin. The power struggle that we see there is a special symbolic importance because the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Union was founded in Madison, Wisconsin, in 1936. This union today is powerful as it has contributed in no small way to the significant increase in labor costs, especially pension and health care benefits which now are part of the bankruptcy of so many state and local governments. These benefits are unsustainable unless the employees begin contributing towards significant portions of the cost, which is now the norm in the private sector of the economy. So what is occurring in Wisconsin is a battle that will be played out in virtually all the states. State and local governments simply cannot afford to pay these lucrative benefits negotiated during the giveaway years mentioned above. The United States government and the state and local governments are on a path of insolvency. As I am taping this, this Wisconsin situation is not resolved. It is highly political and rife with tension and bitterness. But the brutal reality of Wisconsin and Ohio and Illinois and Indiana and California could just go on and on is yes, things must change. And the lucrative benefit packages of public employees are a major portion of the budgetary woes of state and local governments. No matter how you look at it, that is the brutal reality. The giveaway year's day of reckoning has arrived. America faces, in the words of Governor Mitch Daniels of Indiana, quote, a survival-level threat. No enterprise, public or private, he goes on, can remain self-governing, let alone successful, so deeply in hock to others as we are about to be, close that quote. There is no other choice for this nation at the national and at the state levels, than significant reform of our entitlement programs. The battle in Wisconsin is a sign of how potentially ugly this could become. America needs a strong leader. And I've argued this before on our program. A strong leader who will lay out the facts very carefully and very clearly to the American people these unsustainable entitlement commitments, these unsustainable pensions, these unsustainable health care benefits for retired people simply cannot continue. He needs to lay that out carefully. He needs to detail it very specifically and then call the nation to sacrifice. Every single interest group must be called to sacrifice every single interest group, not just the public employee unions, but everyone must sacrifice. President Obama's budget did not do that. What Governor Walker of Wisconsin is calling for and what he is doing is an example of what will need to occur in each locality and in each state and in each part of this nation. The giveaway years are over. The age of austerity has dawned. If we do not accept this, we are doomed as a nation. Everything about our budgets at the local, state, and national levels are unsustainable. And each, each area comes back to these entitlement obligations. We cannot meet them. We cannot pay them. The time for sacrifice, the time for austerity has arrived. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to return to a theme that we have developed over a number of years on our program Issues in Perspective. It is about the adult male, listless and confused. One of my favorite authors is K. M. Heimowitz. Her written works have helped me in developing one of the major themes of this program, an analysis of cultural trends, especially the growing confusion of young men in American culture. Heimovitch uses the term pre-adult to define a new cultural development or even a new stage in human development between the teen years and adulthood. Other sociologists, such as Christian Smith of the University of Virginia, have called this stage the stage of the emerging adult. Here are some of Heimovitz's observations about pre-adulthood, based on her new book, Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys. A great title. I want to cite five major observations from her new book. Number one. Among pre-adults, women are the first sex. They graduate from college in greater numbers, and 34% of women now have a bachelor's degree compared to 27% from men. They also have higher GPAs in college. Number two, pre-adults do not know what is to come next in their lives. For them, marriage and parenthood come in many forms or can be skipped altogether. In 1970, for example, just 16% of Americans aged 25 to 29 had never been married. Today, it's 55% in this age group have never been married. In America, the mean age for the first marriage is now 30 years of age. Number three. Pre-adulthood has also confounded the primordial search for a mate. These are her words. It has delayed a stable sense of identity, dramatically expanded the pool of possible spouses, mystified courtship routines, and helped to throw into doubt the very meaning of marriage. Number four. Meanwhile, men go on struggling with an acceptable adult identity. Women are moving ahead in an advanced economy where husbands and fathers are now optional. The qualities of men that are needed for them to fulfill their role, fortitude, stoicism, courage, fidelity, are obsolete and even a little embarrassing. This healthy role that a man is supposed to have has now been substituted with the likes of Hollywood characters such as Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, and Adam Sandler and Owen Wilson frat boys who have never grown up and are enthralled with sex, NASCAR and drinking beer finally number 5 the number of single men is therefore growing in our culture they are more troubled and less successful than men who deliberately choose to become husbands and fathers so we can be disgusted if some of these single men continue to live with their parents in rooms decorated with Star Wars posters, crushed beer cans, and who treat women like disposable estrogen toys, but we should not be surprised. What has happened in American culture in the last 25 years especially One could even go back 30 or 40, but especially the last 20, 25 years, is a whole stage of human development. Heimowitz calls it the pre-adult male. Christian Smith calls it the emerging adulthood stage. Whatever label we give it, it's a new sociological phenomenon. Men, especially, still near 30 years of age, living with their parents, their room looks like they're still in college. And they are listless, they are confused, and they are no longer the kind of men that women would like to marry. Dear people, what we have seen in our culture is a disastrous sociological development. God has given humanity clear teaching on the respective roles of a man and a woman. When that teaching is ignored, dysfunction, and catastrophe follow in my judgment that is a perfect description of much of american culture in year 2011 men who have not grown up who do not know what it means to be a man who are listless and confused that is a tragedy and that tragedy is going to lead to increasing dysfunction and in my view, increasing social catastrophe. We are in a period of significant sociological change, and the men especially are bearing the brunt of that change. It is not one of our finest moments as a civilization, that we can only pray that God would have mercy and send spiritual renewal and help men to rediscover the purpose and meaning God has for their lives.